Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Yes, hello everybody and welcome to Radiotherapy here on 3RRR. Oh, well, misdiagnosis is yet again slaving away at the medical coalface. I'm lucky enough to be joined here in the studio by our wonderful psychotherapist Prudence Deer and GP Dr. Sonia. <laughs> Dr. Sonia, we've got a new guest on for us today, haven't we? Professor Ian Hickey. <laughs> yes, we do. And I'm a bit out of breath because I was just running to make it because I misplaced my keys this morning. It's not my fault, though. They were where I left them. So can I just give a little tip to yourself and all our listeners? <laughs> I have this little rule. When you can't find something, look more carefully in the place where they ought to be. <laughs> so it's, it is where I left them then. Is yeah, that what you're saying? Now? Yeah, because it, it's so often the case. You, get, you panic, you look in your bag and you think, oh, they're not in the bag. And you start scrabbling around in shelves and drawers and underneath the cat litter tray, all sorts of ridiculous, ridiculous places. It's like you were there with me this morning. <laughs> Does that involve screaming at your partner as well to find out where the keys are? Plenty of screaming always <laughs> involved. But it's such an important point because normally you just look more carefully where the things used to be. Anyway, just, just tell us who this is we've got coming on in the first half of the show for us. Excellent. Yes, well, we've got Professor Ian Hickey coming on today, who's co-director of Health and Policy at University's Sydney, Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre, and he's also an NHMRC Senior Principal Research Fellow and has recently written a book um, trying to demystify all the myths we have about depression, so we're really looking forward to hearing from him. Yes, and Ian was kind enough to come on the show during Radiothon and say hi to us, and now we're delighted to be having him back, uh, and that'll be sometime after about 10 past 10, uh, on the phone, talking about depression and his new book. And Prudence, dear, um, mm-hmm. welcome to you. Um, who have we got, and who have we got in the second half of the show? In the second half, right. Well, kind of in the theme of books, really. Um, uh, we've got a new author, someone who's published their first book. It's Alexandra Collier. Um, an Australian who'd been living in America who came back to Melbourne and um, has had interesting adventures into the, um, the world of, of solo motherhood. And her book is called Inconceivable and uh, Heartbreak, subtitled Heartbreak, uh, Bad Dates and Finding Solo Motherhood. So I think we're going to have a very interesting and enlightening conversation there. Yeah, looking forward so much to having Alexandra in the studio, and that'll be um, after about half past ten. Um, regular listeners will know that this is one of my favourite parts of the show. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. The dog park shout out here on 3 Triple R. Now, I've got two today, which is very exciting, um, because in the park uh, last weekend uh, was the completely wonderful and very fluffy. Um, it was a 
dog that was a, what was it called? It was a an Irish doodle. Have you ever heard of an Irish doodle? I don't think I know the number of oodles that are out there. They seem <laughs> well, to you multiply. Can, you can sort of oodle just about anything, really, can't you? But I've, so a what, an Irish wolfhound? Well done! Yes, oh. an Irish wolfhound. If you cross an Irish wolfhound <laughs> with a poodle, and that's a, a full-size poodle, you get a fabulous six-month creature called Roo, who is all fluffy and shaggy and just the most delightful creature in the park with uh, his dad, his own, <laughs> Ollie. Uh, so they were there last weekend in Richmond and lovely to meet them, looking forward to seeing them and chasing lots of balls with them. But then, on top of that, I was lucky enough to be out for lunch at the gorgeous Kellybrook Winery. Um, I was getting woofed at by this creature, so any creature woofs at me, I have to come and say hello. And the creature who was woofing at me was a border collie, Kelpie. So... Yes. Okay, apparently a regular mix out in the country. Oh, a city I'm sure they're quite common. <laughs> yes, yeah. It sounds like a hard-working dog, definitely. Yeah. Well, this one's hard work, woofing away, um, protecting, protecting Master Declan, who was sitting there having a glass of wine and an enjoyable lunch. Um, but this beautiful dog, whose name was Rani, uh, 14 months old, and uh, very protective, but uh, you know, one of those dogs that just lick you to death, so absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> so after the dogs, it's important that we go to some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. It's news time, um, and uh, Dr. Sonia, I, I made a note. I, this is a slight question without notice because uh, I noticed in the news that Baruli is on the march again. Did you catch up with that little I story? I did. Yeah, it's a bit worrying, isn't it? So Baruli ulcers. We're having a lot more cases this year than we did the same time last year, and it's also creeping into our surrounds around the studio. So inner north and inner west of Melbourne are where we've had some new cases. So, sorry, um, what is Baruli? Yes, great ulcers. place to Sounds start. Horrible. <laughs> so, Baruli ulcers, um, they're caused by, they're a bacterial skin infection. Mm. And what we mean by ulcer is a non-healing wound. So, the, the protective epithelial layer is gone and it's the moist, oozy uh, part underneath that's exposed. And the reason we worry about them is they're, like you hear in the horror movies, they're flesh-eating bacteria. Mm. So, it's a wound that can spread. It can destroy the tissues underneath the skin, and it doesn't respond to traditional antibiotics. And um, previously this was confined, so it started off in the sort of Bellarine. It was known as the Bansdale ulcer. It was also up in the north in Queensland. It was the Daintree ulcer. Uh, the reason we want to mention it this morning is because it's now, as these things do, it's spreading a bit. They found a few cases in New South Wales for the first time mm. um, in uh, what was Malden, now Merribeck, um in Melbourne. Um, yes. So it's creeping around and getting a little bit closer. Um, Dr Sonia, do you know how they now say it's spread? Well, my understanding was that it was um, mosquito-related and also uh, possum poo-related. As a Kiwi, we don't like possums very much, so I didn't need another reason not to like possums. But that's my understanding, Dr Nick. Yes, uh, it's a fascinating story. I've been following this for over 20 years and interviewed Professor Paul Johnson, who's the expert on this well over 20 years ago on ABC television, when they were saying, no, it's nothing to do with mosquitoes. So now, oh, it's everything to do with mosquitoes. just shows how the march of science changes. Um, 
and yet we now think the possums are the carrier, the, and then when mozzies bite them, they pass it on to humans, and the, and the bug might also be excreted in the possum poo, so don't start rubbing possum poo into any open sores. Definitely but stop that, that. That does enable actually kind of tracking where, it's, where it is, isn't it, by getting samples of possum poo and uh, checking on the presence of the bacterium or not. Yeah. So the reason we want people to know about it is because if you get one of these little red sores that doesn't heal and commonly doctors don't think of, um, of Beruli, Mycobacterium ulcerans, um, it's actually very helpful if you as the patient alert your doctor to the possibility. Uh, there is a swab test that can be done. It's not 100% accurate, but it gives a good indication. Um, so getting a swab test done is worth doing. You just don't want to wait too long because many people have been round and round the circle of having lots of antibiotics and so on, the thing's not getting better. So. Mm. And the reason it's so important to get it diagnosed is we need to notify our public health colleagues so they can track the outbreak and also we need to get our infectious disease specialists involved to make sure it's treated accurately so we can avoid surgical treatment, which we don't want. Spot on, Dr Sonia. And the other quick update I want to, before we get um, Professor Ian Hickey on the phone, um, we talked last time about the shingles vaccine, Shingrix. Well, woohoo! since we talked about it last week, the government listened to radiotherapy and they changed their policy immediately when they hear us on air. Huge influence we have here. And, uh, so from the 1st of November, anyone 65 plus or uh, um, Indigenous Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, 50 plus or anyone with a severe Im- immunocompromising illness over the age of 18 can now get Shingrix, the new effective and previously very expensive vaccine, on the government schedule. So that's from the 1st Fantastic. of November. Mm. Yeah, We're not quite sure who's got the stocks of it because <laughs> we haven't got it yet. <laughs> but we're hoping for a strong, secure supply um, because I suspect there's going to be a strong run on that. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Now, on the phone, we're very lucky to have Professor Ian Hickey. Um, Ian is an internationally renowned professor of psychiatry, co-founder 20 years ago of the Brain and Mind Research Centre in Sydney, now the Brain and Mind Centre, and he's just been published a really important new book on depression called uh, called The, De- the Devil You Knew. Um, Ian, good morning. Lovely to have you on the show. Good morning, Dr Nick. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, first question straight up. Why the devil you knew? Explain that title to me. Yeah. Many people are bedeviled by depression much of their life. Sits on their shoulder, leads them into bad places, can't get out of the hole. This book is all about getting the best treatment for yourself, getting out of that hole and staying out, leaving the devil behind. Many, Many people feel they're stuck with this for life, as distinct from finding the best treatment, getting well and staying well. Lovely. And an obvious question to me is there's so much uh, problem with mental health out there in the community. We know anxiety is even more common than depression. Why focus just on depression for a whole book? A whole book? Because, well, this has a long history because depression is the big hole. Interesting you say about anxiety. A lot of the book is devoted to the fact that the most common forms of depression, that the vulnerability is actually anxiety. Anxiety runs through people's lives but they fall into holes of depression. And when they're in those holes of their depression, they're really in a bad way. And they're really, of course, their whole physiology is perturbed. They're very physically sick, but they're also at much greater risk. 
Excellent. So, to, so one of the questions that people often ask me is, is depression really more common now? Because it feels like we're talking about it all the time. And, you know, is this something which we're just a beat up in the media? Is it just COVID? Is this something that was happening anyway? What's the story of depression and frequency? That, that's a complicated question because it goes to the accuracy of the sort of community surveying that we have now compared with the past. But best we can tell since the end of the Second World War. Here's the good news. If you're older like me, rates of depression have gone down in older people due to better physical health. So, surprisingly what people say, because my musculoskeletal system is in decline, but my mental health's on the up. <laughs> and, you know, that's a great thing. Now, of course, the reverse appears to be true for younger people, that the mental health of younger people during the same period has generally declined. And this has gone up and down. It hasn't always stayed the same, but right at the moment we appear to have increasing rates, certainly of anxiety and of associated self-harm. There's a lot of debate about whether depression itself, in a really clinical form, is more common or not, or the precursors of anxiety, distress and other problems in younger people are more common. So that's, a, that's an interesting kind of question. But the good news for older people on the decline, probably the bad news for younger people, it's on the up. So I forgot to mention at the start of the show that if people want to make comments or anything, please get in touch on our text line, 0466981027, Dr. Sonia, you've got a question for yeah, Professor Hickey. Yeah, Professor Hickey, you mentioned um, young people and the challenges with um, understanding increased rates of depression. And something that I notice with my younger patients and my medical students is um, they talk about depression sometimes in a serious way, sometimes in a funny way, but much, much more openly than than older people. And I'm, I'm wondering if um, how you sort of explain to younger people what the differences are between the ups and downs of life, depression. That's something we do a lot in GP, but I'd like to hear your opinion on that. How do we explain that to patients? I'm so glad you asked because that's what the book's all about. We've got to really differentiate the normal emotional life we all lead and the ups and downs in that and how we cope with that from those that fall into really much more what the book's about, clinical depression. So, you know, 100% of us, five out of five, will have down periods in our life. But only one out of five of us will actually really have a depressive episode. So depression as a word, depression as a mood state, and in a good way, has become universal, has become ubiquitous. And we, and we talk about these things much more. But the physiology of depression, what actually happens physiologically as well as psychologically when you become profoundly depressed, is quite different. And four out of five of us, thank God, will never know what that's like. But if you're one of the people that's got it, then you've got to be able to tell the difference. And those around you and your doctors and others need to be able to tell the difference and take appropriate actions. It's one of the things I'm just going to hand over to you, second imprudence, but I can't help jumping in here because you mentioned the physical side of things, uh, Professor Hickey, and in the very first page of your book, uh, you make a note, if you don't have physical symptoms like really severe fatigue, muscle aches, pains, disturbed gut or racing heartbeat, you're not really depressed. And I thought that was fascinating. That's on the very first page. I thought that was very helpful. Absolutely. I think there were some really good, uh, you know, there's some really good examples that you've done there, Professor, around, you know, what constitutes depression and what doesn't um, but I you know just following on especially around young people and how we go about treatment I mean I I'm a psychotherapist I see a lot of young people many of whom are on antidepressants that have been prescribed by their GP and I'm just sort of concerned at times that you know somebody might present to a GP they say they've got low mood they do a k10 they get 
oh, a high score against depression, and you know they get a script for something. Um, that concerns me. Well, that would me. be a very bad outcome. That would be a yeah. very bad outcome. Right? Thank so, you. <laughs> back, 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 in the 1990s, back in the 1990s, when I really got involved in this, that's what was happening in Australia. A rapid increase in prescription of the Prozac-like drugs, SSRIs. Mm. And at that stage, just remember, Medicare did not cover any psychological therapy at all. When I was originally the CEO of Beyond Blue, one of our great achievements right back in the early 2000s was to commence the coverage of psychological therapies under Medicare because medicines were covered under Medicare and under our PBS, of course. And a lot of GP education, a lot of discussion at the time was we needed to have a greater balance and appropriateness and, and actually sort out these pathways to care. A lot of the early intervention movements, which are very appropriate for younger people, put a great deal of emphasis on psychological therapies first and certainly in the less severe situations. So, but there's also an issue about what people can access because that was all fine, What's going on at the moment, of course, we're back, not quite we were in the 1990s, but access to psychological therapy, affordable access, has actually gone down, not up. So in the Solution National Mental Health Survey, just out in the last month, still less than 50% of people who've actually got depression get care. And access to psychological therapies for those uh, who can't afford them and live outside of the major parts of our major cities tends to go down rather than up. So we've got a whole health system challenge to connect the right treatments and the best treatments, particularly the young people, at the earliest opportunity. Professor Heggie, I'm so grateful that you mentioned um, Medicare access and this multidisciplinary approach that we need for our patients because I completely agree with Prudence, dear, that sometimes as GPs, if we can't get patients the treatment they actually need, like psychological therapies, social support, financial support, we're, we're hamstringed a little bit and, and all we have left at our disposal are, are medications. And sometimes I've wondered if I should do the additional focused psychological strategies training that GPs can do to fill the gap. Of course, it doesn't do the the job that a psychologist does, but it's something to fill the gap while patients wait to be able to afford to see a psychologist. Um, what, what do you think we could do better as GPs when we're struggling with our patients accessing those um, that care? Well, the first response is, yes, you should definitely do that training. We had a discussion <laughs> with the College of General Practitioners. Now, you're going to frustrate me here because the College of General Practitioners discussion in 2001 that this would be an essential part of all GP training from that time onwards. Now, of course, GPs are expected to do everything. You know, it's kind of, not, it's kind of complicated to say that, but these are essential skills for many health professionals, not just for GPs, but for many others as well, and we need to expand and use new access to psychological therapies. Of course, what's changed since then, of course, there's a great deal of online approaches, other ways of accessing that care. And I've got to say, any treatment, including the prescribing of medications, any treatment is better than no treatment. No treatment's a really bad option. You know, so the fact that sometimes people prescribe first and then have psychological therapy second, that's not necessarily a bad thing if the person requires that. But you're raising a really important point, and it's one I try to make continuously in the book. We, so few people get good care over time. A lot of people become dispirited then. The care doesn't work. The treatment doesn't work. So this is a huge workforce and health system challenge. We've never really set up a health system to provide the best possible care. So like, if, you get a, if you get the book, you'll sense my frustration. You know, I'm the son of a cardiologist. My mum thought I should have stayed in cardiology. You know, <laughs> if you're a cancer specialist, you know, you see things. You see great children's hospitals. We've struggled to set up great psychological care, but great psychological care works. 
and saves lives and really makes a huge difference to people's quality of life. It's 10.21 here on 3 R. You're listening to me, Dr Nick, on Radiotherapy with Prudence Dear, Dr Sonia. And on the telephone we have the magnificent Professor Ian Hickey of the Main, Brain, Main and Brind. I think we'll go with that. <laughs> we'll go with the Spoonerism, the Main and Brind Institute in New South Wales. We've got a, uh, a fabulous text come in, Ian, to see you know, a 50-year-old male texting and say, we never talked about this when I was in my 20s or 30s. What has saved me and a lot of people a lot more pain if we had it's good to have more conversation which i think is a great point over to you prudence yeah um ian i think you know the the idea of uh, that, that some treatment's better than no treatment um is an important concept we also had a few weeks ago i think on this show we were talking about the post-truth era so i'm wondering about just the um you know the myths that you expose in your book and in particular the idea that perhaps antidepressant medications don't work or they're no better than placebo and also that they may well increase suicide risk especially amongst young people yeah so the post-truth here i I thought i wouldn't have to write this book 20 years ago in fact i thought most of the debates about all what you just mentioned were debates we had in the early 2000s and there have been huge meta-analyses and huge kind of considerations of these but in the post-truth era they're back and discouraging. So, for example, we use one of the examples in the book, which is 20,000 Australians have participated in our Australian Genetics and Depression Study about their experiences with antidepressants. 70% of those people receive very significant benefits every day. And although most of them have some side effects, they may have some sexual side effects, they may have weight gain and other difficulties, they choose to continue therapy, the medication therapy, because their lives are so much better as a consequence. And a lot of work I've been associated with myself over time, suicidality goes down in those who are treated. Treated, I might say, with medicines or with psychological therapies. Going back to an earlier point in this work we did with Australian general practitioners and others, when people are diagnosed and treated with whatever form of treatment they receive, suicidality goes down, not up. Now, there are groups of people that have particular difficulties and some people may become agitated when they start antidepressants. So close medical monitoring is essential for people when they start or when they come off medicines. So these are then just like other serious things we do in medicine. When you prescribe medicines, you've got to do it seriously and be careful about it. But the great majority of people benefit. Current antidepressants are much safer and effective, particularly effective for the anxious sorts of depression that we were discussing earlier on. So, you know, we've got to put some things to bed. The real issue now is finding the treatment that works for you. It's a bit like in cancer saying radiotherapy versus chemotherapy versus surgery versus immunotherapy. That's not really the issue. The issue is what combinations of treatments will work for your kind of depression. Because depression is a very broad church. It covers a lot of different pathophysiologies, a lot of different mechanisms underneath it. And working out which one works for you. That's really, the personalization now is really the challenge, not an endless debate about the relative merits of medicines versus psychological therapies. One of the things that fascinated me about your book, Ian, is that you don't actually even begin talking about treatments till page about 307. (laughs) And I I got to page 307 and thought, alas, this is going to tell me what to do. And then I got to about page 340 and realised they actually weren't going to tell me what to do. Uh, But before we come back to treatment, I want to backtrack a little bit. And just a quick one, of course, you've sparked the interest of all our listeners here. And someone's just rung in saying, does the professor have a podcast. I have a sneaky feeling you do have a podcast. Can you tell us about that? I'm very fortunate. I love podcasts. I love your show. We should share these all. Yes, Minding Your Mind. We're up to episode about 140 with James O'Loughlin, ex-ABC presenter. 
and many of these issues we explore in some considerable depth and, and, and respond to people's writing in questions, etc. So Minding Your Mind, off your podcast series, and there's a book to go with it actually last year, uh, with James O'Loughlin. Amazing how Professor Ian Hickey has any time to do any professing when he's got a, a podcast, <laughs> Minding Your Mind. He's just written this new book called The Devil You Knew, which is a fabulous read. I want to, I want to wind back before we talk more about treatment, though, because we haven't actually talked about what constitutes depression. And particularly, I want you to tell us what you mean by anhedonia, which I always see as the hallmark of what presents in my patients. Exactly. I'm so glad you said that, Dr. Nick, because most people think depression is the mood, is sadness, is tears, is upset at something that happens in your life. So the first thing I want to say is it's not. That is not depression. That is normal emotionality. And a lot of the critics in this area who think that depression was invented by the American Psychiatric Association or the pharmaceutical industry, that we're trying to treat normal sadness. We are not. Emotionality is good. Lot pleasure in life, loss of your emotionality, that's bad. So anhedonia is literally the lack of hedonism, the lack of pleasure. If you can't get up, it's the most fabulous morning in Sydney this morning. I've been out down to the surf, out in the sunshine, been for a walk. The day is highly pleasurable. If that was gone, I'd be willing to worry about myself a great deal. You know, that characteristic and the lack of emotionality. I make the comment in the book, often patients get better when they can cry again. <laughs> yes. When they experience pleasure again when they can actually react again they know they're better it's such an important point and i remember actually a patient of mine who himself was a psychiatrist with depression and he told me i knew i was getting better when i was sitting outside the mcg with my son and i was looking forward to the game and i hadn't had that experience for so many months that, that is so profound, and I think this is one of the things where we've missed the boat a little bit with all of our awareness raising, that people have, uh, in using the terminology, assumed they know what we're talking about. But unless this is hard, unless you've been with someone or experienced it yourself, that thing is hard to know. I use the experience of jet lag and others to try and explain it better. Just imagine you were jet lagged. You've ever been really seriously jet lagged, but you're awake and you can't really enjoy things and your body's all over the place and you try and carry on, but you know things are just not right. That's the physicality of it, as well as the lack of being able to engage and enjoy. Dr Sonia. Mm, yeah. Professor Hickey, um, you, you talked a little, or something I heard you talk about was, um, well, something I tell my patients often is the importance of acting well before you feel well. And that's doing the day-to-day -day activities of looking after yourself, socialising, going to work, even though it's hard, but the act of doing those things can sometimes help you on the road to recovery. And you mentioned something about work in relation to feeling better. What did you mean by that? Yeah, it sounds hard, doesn't it? It sounds like I'm a really hard bastard. You know, just when you're feeling terrible, you can't get out of bed. Here am I saying, look, if you get out of bed and you'll do stuff, that actually the tr best treatment for, for fatigue is activity. The best treatment for lack of motivation is doing. And a lot of work I'm tied up with when I am being a proper professor, I've got to say, is tied up in trying to understand the mechanisms by which activity and participation drive the biology back in the right direction when the natural response is to lie down, retreat and withdrawal, which actually makes the situation worse as to how the body actually does that and, and the brain's control over it does it. So it sounds counterintuitive. It sounds harsh. 
But in reality, it's often essential. So I've made the comment, we don't get well to go to work. We go to work to get well. You know, we need to get up in the morning and set our body clocks and be in the 24-hour cycle by being physically active to actually increase our energy and improve our mood. We need to interact with other people in order to draw the pleasure that we draw in actually those interactions. And that the natural state of depression is to take us away from all of those factors. Another one of our wonderful listeners has texted in saying, I went to my GP when I was 22 because of life events that led me to feel absolutely lousy. My GP said I was too young to be depressed. Um, what age are you able to be depressed, Professor Hickey? Uh, this is one of the biggest issues to address. So when I was young, I used to do a lot of geriatric depression, look at brain changes. Now I'm old, I do almost exclusively depression and anxiety work in young people. So the peak age of onset is between 15 and 25 that people will have their first major episode so this is a huge challenge to us and that sort of stuff that young people look physically well so what have they got to be miserable about you know how could they possibly have these psychological issues running is a huge mistake and the epidemiology again around this is quite conclusive around the world that the peak age of onset, and there's a lot, people are aware of this, a lot happening in the brain and the body during that adolescent period. The brain changes, the hormonal changes, the life changes in that period lead to emotionality. And when it goes off track, you end up with severe anxiety or depression or some of the more serious mental health problems. Professor Hickey, there's so much that we should and would love to talk about in this book, but time is upon us. Um, there's, for people who've heard this and their interest is piqued, it's called The Devil You Knew. Uh, it's a fabulous book. Uh, you're not going to just start reading about medications on page one. They'll get lots of advice, but <laughs> most importantly, you'll understand... Hang in there to page 307. <laughs> we'll start at 307 and then go back and read the rest. But what, there's one thing I loved about the book. It was so important. It, explains so much in very accessible terms about what this illness is. Um, Ian, I should just ask you to say if this has caused anyone listening distress or they're looking for immediate help, can you just tell listeners where they should turn? Yeah, so Lifeline, Beyond Blue, and certainly the issue about your own local doctor and your own local health system. You yeah. know, go seek help because help makes a big difference. Yep, so Lifeline 131114, Beyond Blue Online, um, and certainly your GP. Um, Professor Ian Hickey, it's been an absolute delight to have you. The book is fabulous, The Devil You Knew. I hope it sells a million, um, and we'd love to have you on another time. Thanks so much. Uh, that was Professor Ian Hickey from the Mind Brain Institute, not the Brian Maind Institute, whatever I called it last time. Um, absolutely amazing. And I must say, uh, as a GP with a long-standing interest in this area, I learned a lot from reading that book. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. I'm delighted to introduce Alexandra Collier because Ali is an award-winning writer, playwright, uh, whose musical Trip Light was played off-Broadway in New York. She's the proud single mother of the gorgeous four-year-old Quinn and the, and the author of the book about her journey to single parenthood. Inconceivable. And I've read your book, Ali. It's completely wonderful. <laughs> I'm going to give a spoiler alert because uh, um, I'm going to ask you all about it. So for those that um, don't want to know the content, well, stay listening anyway because it's all going to be fascinating. First up, Ellie, I want to ask you about being in New York. You were living the dream. You're in your 30s. Tell us where it all began. Sure. I, uh, like many 20-somethings, I 
thought that moving to New York would be easy. So I did that in my 20s and went there to work in theatre as a playwright. And I ended up staying for 10 years and I got into a relationship with an American guy. It was a long-term relationship. We were really happy. But then I woke up in my mid-30s to this sudden longing to have a baby. It really hit me overnight and it is actually a phenomenon. They've studied it. And unfortunately, my partner did not share that longing. So it catapulted me out of that relationship. I left a very happy relationship and moved back to Melbourne where I boarded the uh, roller coaster of online dating while also considering whether or not I could become a parent via donor sperm on my own. That must be such a huge decision because uh, from the description in the book and he is named, isn't he? That's not a huge Yes, no, so. that's fine. That's his name. Well, yes, you know that's his name. Yeah. You've met him. Yeah. Dave. I mean, you know, it's a good pseudonym. Oh, no, the, the pseudonym of the ex-boyfriend, yes, that is not his name. Oh, no. that's not his name. about my son. His name is Quinn, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but Dave, it sounds like a fantastic man. It sounds like the relationship was really lovely. So to turf all that must have been very, very hard. It was difficult, yeah. I think, you know, we wrestled with it for a while. We went to therapy. Uh, we dealt with it in a very mature, progressive way, which is part of why I loved him because he was such a mature kind of together guy. And I think as a woman in your 30s dating, you know, straight men, you're often told, like, don't let go of a good man. A good man is really hard to find. You know, you never let them go. So it was quite counterintuitive to leave that relationship, particularly when I could see that my biological window was sort of narrowing and I was heading towards 40 and the sort of panic starts to kick in and you start to read all these clickbait articles about you know your fertility being on the decline. Yeah that's that's a really interesting uh, question there or idea around the fertility decline because you talk about how your your reproductive timeline was outpacing your romantic life and research shows that uh, people aren't actually as aware as I would have thought about how our fertility declines as women. There's a um, We were taught in medical school there's a shallow decline at 30 and a steep decline at 35. Do you feel like you were well aware of that timeline or is that something you sort of learnt along your journey? I think there's a lot of contradictory information out there about fertility and when it actually declines and IVF is sort of held up as this sort of golden ticket that's going to get you out of your you know your biology like it's going to help you escape from the inevitable in some way and we know that that's not always true sadly it's you know it's a science but it's far from exact and I think I came from a medical family and I was sort of having these conversations with my mum where she was saying, just have a baby, just have a baby. And I was thinking, saying to her, well, it's just not that easy when your yeah, partner doesn't want one. You were only 15 <laughs> at the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, um, seriously, what age were you when your mum started telling you, go on, have a baby? Well, I think it was probably in my mid-30s when I started having these conversations with my partner about wanting kids and I was also looking into freezing my eggs. Which was, you know, now it's really common. A lot of people I know are freezing their eggs preemptively. But it was sort of just, I think it was starting to become kind of de rigueur. And, you know, companies were bringing it in as part of their policy and all that sort of stuff that they were paying for women to be able to freeze their eggs. But I went to a fertility clinic in New York and talked to someone about freezing my eggs. And, I, yeah, I, I kind of got the sense that it was going to, one, it was going to be very expensive. And I was an artist living in New York, so I didn't have $10,000. And two, there was no guarantee that it was ever going to work out in future, even if I did freeze my eggs. So there's this kind of, it's just an unquantifiable number of eggs that you're going to get, the quality of the eggs, whether they'll fertilise, you know, there's so many factors involved. 
Mm. It's, it's very challenging, isn't it? And I mean, my sort of understanding, I guess, is that the whole kind of fertility, it's, it's a big industry. It's big, big money. And, you know, they want, I mean, you know, they want you to have, you know, to join programs to have lots of treatments and lots of tests and so on. So did you find it like, is that sort of hyper-medicalising something that's so natural? Uh, that's an interesting question. I think part of my fear around, you know, it was one, it was financial, but two, I remember the fertility specialist describing to me that my, you know, that my ovaries might swell up to the size of mangoes and that I couldn't ride a bike. And she was quite alarmist. Mm. And I think <laughs> that that did scare me to some degree. And I thought it was going to be a lot more interventionist than maybe it actually is having seen people go through the same process. And also now having done fertility treat myself and having, done the hormones where I've had to inject myself it's the those needles are not nearly as terrifying as one thinks you know you can't even feel the pain which is great um I was really shocked by that but yeah I think it did feel sort of like this foreign wild crazy thing to do and um maybe that's changing now that people are sort of more aware of it and maybe I just had not a great doctor I mean (laughs) sorry I shouldn't say that on the show should I there's bad doctors you're you're (laughs) most welcome to say that on the show I want to go back though before we get to the doctory bits because you're in New York you've made that decision you've come back to Melbourne at this stage you're aged I came back to Melbourne uh at about 37 yeah and it wasn't a decision to go straight to an IVF clinic it was back on the dating scene wasn't it I think, like so many people, I had been brought up with this idea, this sort of romantic fantasy that I was going to meet my partner and we were going to have babies together and that was just going to be inevitable. And so I kept people kept saying to me, you'll meet someone, don't worry, you'll meet someone. Of course it'll happen, you'll meet someone. And so I believed them. I thought, they're right, I'm going to meet someone. Why wouldn't I? I've had relationships in the past that have been happy. But, you know, as you were saying, Sonia, the, the idea of your reproductive timeline sort of you know, in a race with your romantic life is is really tricky. And it's like, you know, fall in love, meet someone tomorrow, fall in love by the next day, have babies by the next week. Like you start to do these sort of mental calculations that are impossible. And I don't think love can unfold when there's that pressure hovering over you. It's very hard for a relationship to unfold naturally in that sort of So I guess that was pressure. my question. How is it possible to even go on the dating scene with that ridiculous sort of pressure hanging over every (laughs) sense every interaction yeah I think you sort of have to delude yourself to a certain degree or sort of you know try and separate out you know the future from the present it's like we're just here together having a drink you know it's not it's not my whole life that's hanging in the balance otherwise you go a bit crazy um but I did sort of start to have this dawning realisation that while my romantic timeline could wait, my biological timeline couldn't. And that freed me in a lot of ways. I was interested in your mum's response, though, and I really want to ask you about this because I know you wrestled with this in the book. Um, Because if I remember correctly, um, your mum's initial response is, oh, women who choose to do this on their own, they're just selfish. Is that correct? Yes, yes, it was. And... You know, it's interesting. I think there was a kind of coming out process, to borrow queer terminology, around this for me and for other people I know telling their parents, other single women who have become solo mothers and use donor sperm. It takes, you know, your family are hoping for this, for you to be happy. And so I think my parents wanted me to be happy and they saw happiness as unfolding the way their lives had in this sort of traditional format of marriage and babies and so I think that was at play, but you know we we some we sometimes uh, 
this is not going to be revelatory, have conflicting views with our parents. <laughs> so you heard, it, you heard it first here on Radio <laughs> So I think, you know, it's that tricky thing of becoming an adult, which is that you have to leave your parents' views behind to some extent. And, of course, my mum said, well, I don't want to spoil the book too much, but, you know, a lot of the book, a lot of Inconceivable, this memoir is about my relationship to my mother as well as becoming a mother. Um, yeah, I think... Um, <coughs> Just thinking about that, where, where people do something that kind of just challenges societal and family norms, so you get that kind of reaction as you did. I'm, I'm interested in, like, what you might have anticipated and perhaps what you found, like, in the broader sort of community about what you were planning and actually doing. Mm, that's a great question. I think I was selective about who I told I mean, when you're planning to get pregnant on your own, there's, you don't, I mean, when you plan to get pregnant in general, you don't, don't usually tell people. So, you know, I told a few friends and they were supportive. There was sort of, you know, people who were kind of in the broader circle who would say things like, oh, that's going to be really hard. That's going to be really hard. Mm. And they were parents themselves. And there's a weird kind of schadenfreude around parenting. It's like people love telling you about how terrible it's going to be. Um, and, you know, those people are right. It is hard. It's very hard to be a solo parent. It's hard to be a parent. And that's why I think I wrote Inconceivable because there's this sort of treacly narrative that you see in the news around solo mums using donor sperm. It's like, it's the best decision I ever made. And of course it is the best decision I ever made, but it's a complicated path and it is really hard work. And even though it's called solo parenthood, you actually need a village of people around you to support you to raise a child. Absolutely. Did you find that? Did you find that village? Did you? Yeah, I mean, my parents have been amazing. Once there's a baby in the picture, people definitely change their tune. It's you know, nobody questions a baby. People, most people love babies, and so um, they've been incredible. My brother has been great. There's you know, and people. I find that other people who have kids the same age are often like your best support system, in a way. <laughs> Not necessarily people who don't have kids. <laughs> Our ever-astute listeners are straight on to it, and, uh, and I suspect a male listener has texted in saying, I want to know what happened to Dave. Did he ever go on and have his own <laughs> children? <laughs> now, this is, this is uh, so many spoiler alerts happening here, but on Ali. Well, you know, it's so many, so many people ask me that question. It's really funny. And I keep saying to people, the book is about me becoming a solo parent. Like, who cares what Dave thinks? I forgot Dave even existed once we started talking. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. It's, uh, it's a mystery look, yet men, to be solved. Look, many, it's all about us. So that, <laughs> this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We are talking to Alexandra Collier, single parent and author of a book about getting to that point of being a single parent, a book called Inconceivable. Uh, inconceivable to me that I couldn't read this book. I couldn't put it down. So when I first picked it up, I thought, oh, I'll have a quick look at this. And then found myself about midnight and 70 pages in, thinking, I need to go to sleep because I just absolutely loved it. Um, I just want to ask you, um, uh, Ali, one of the questions that came up for me with this, um, the, the, the guilt that was associated with your experience because you went through this process. Now, let's, uh, we'll come back to the guilt. I want to come back to the decision, the decision to 
take sperm because you couldn't find a partner at this stage. How do you do that? And people often say, well, it's not that hard, is it? You just need to go to the pub on a Friday night and problem sorted. So tell us about how you sorted out that question. Yeah, it's baffling how many people tell you to go and have a one-night stand because you're hoping to get pregnant. Uh, I was not going to take that path because it seemed like an unethical one to potentially, you know, for so many reasons, you know, it's not necessarily great for your health to have <laughs> unprotected sex with a random stranger. Oh, not, you had it here first. Yeah, your it's not great for your future child <laughs> to potentially not know who that father is. So, and I had also met a lot of um, solo mums by choice through, um, a community um, meeting that I went to through VARTA that used to they used to run this solid mum support group. Sorry, VARTA, VARTA is yeah. the Victorian Assisted Reproductive Treatment Authority, and they collect all the information about um, donors in Victoria, and they have a um, database of donors and children and all that sort of stuff. And they used to run these amazing meetings, and in the meetings, I met these other women who were following this path, and I could I sort of started to learn about what was possible and what was the best kind of ethical route to conceive a child on your own. And I think that's the irony of solo parents being called selfish is that there's such a conscientious, deliberate thoughtfulness to solo parenthood, particularly when you're going through these avenues of fertility treatment through clinics and, you know, considering all your options. So I think that's what we want for our children, isn't it? For them to be loved and to be um, wanted. So I've sort of lost the original thread of your question now. Yeah, I've got no idea. I did, that's that's, that's <laughs> sorry. two minutes ago. It's no, Sunday morning, isn't it? No, it was about how you, how you decide how and where to get sperm because it's such a – because yes. you are exactly as you're saying, you're choosing the genetic other half for your offspring. It's a really difficult choice. I decided to go through uh, a fertility clinic and use the sperm um, d- database donor bank there and – I sort of go, I go through that in the book in, in a lot of detail about the different avenues. You know, there are people who will give you their sperm on the internet, on Facebook. It's a real wild west out there and it's problematic, I think, for many reasons. One, um, people don't abide by the family limits. So in Victoria, that's 10 families. So that can be, you know, 20 children because one family can have three, two, three children. So there are men out there who are not necessarily abiding by the law and sperm donation is supposed to be altruistic, so you're not allowed to sell, you know, sperm, obviously. And there's, you know, people online who are... There's there's a seedy situations happening, no pun intended, where women have been coerced into having sex with men. You know, I think it's, um, it's just not... A child doesn't want to be related to hundreds of siblings, find out later on. There's so many, you know, red flags in, on the internet for getting sperm. Yeah, I find it uh, really interesting that your journey in a way started in the US. Uh, When I was doing my Master's of Reproductive Biology many, many years ago, I remember learning about the the differences in these systems in these different countries. And in the US, I believe that you can um, pay for sperm and you can pay for oocyte or egg donation. And um, Australia and New Zealand, the the ethics committees have decided that's unethical, as you mentioned. Mm. Um, And yet, as Prudence Dear um, 
sort of alluded to, it, it is a highly privatized and at times commercialized industry. And there's a lot of misperceptions around choosing a sperm donor and there's a shopping cart of traits and physical and personality traits you can um, you can choose. And I have to admit that patients ask me about that process and I, I know very little about it actually. Um, what, what sorts of things do you see um, when you're looking at sperm donors or do you see any traits or any information of that nature? In Australia or you know, through Victorian clinics, you get a letter that the donor has written to the potential child and you get a medical history. So you'll get sort of basic things like their height, their build, their eye colour, their ethnicity, um, you know, any genetic um, traits, say they are a carrier for cystic fibrosis, you'll have something like that, which was an issue for me because I was a carrier, so I was looking for a donor who wasn't. So it's pretty limited. There weren't photos when I was doing this there are now baby photos at some clinics so you have a little bit more information but you it's all online you do feel a little bit like you're kind of doing tinder for sperm but it's on a much smaller scale so for instance when I was looking to do IUI which is intrauterine insemination um you know sort of fancy version of turkey based I guess uh there were only 10 possible donors that I could choose from the clinic and that seemed really small to me at the time but you know Actually, it was good to be limited in some ways because the sort of, you know, overwhelming nature of choice, like in the US where you've got hundreds and hundreds of potential donors, it's a, it's a totally different game and it's unregulated. So those donors can donate to as many families as they want. Can I ask you, what are the best and worst things that people have said to you through this whole process? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Well... Uh, at my first medical appointment at the um, public hospital, which I won't name, uh, the midwife said to me after I told her that my, you know, baby-to-be was donor-conceived, she said, can I ask you a personal question? And I thought, oh, God, please don't. This is not going to go well. You know, you never – you don't want that. Yes. And she said, did you just want to have a baby? And I thought that that was a really odd question because it, it – I mean, it was – it showed that she was kind of naive and, you know, not informed necessarily, but also there was a series of judgments that I thought were sort of percolating under that question. And I think that's why I wrote Inconceivable because I wanted to sort of open up this path and show people that this is not a second best option or like a loserish choice. And I wanted to destigmatize this path to parenthood. So what's the, what's the right way? What are the good things that people say? What do you like I, to hear when people mm, hear about this? I, I think some people are really complimentary and they say, like, good on you, that's incredible, like, what a fantastic thing to do, you know. I, I, and then they'll proceed to tell me a series of stories about someone they know or their own relationship that's gone off the rails where kids are involved. And so I think there is a sort of a lot of affirmation from the world because, as we know, um, partnered relationships don't always work out. And so it's... It's sort of vindicating to hear that in some ways, but that doesn't, you know, of course, take away from the fact that it is a challenging path. I wonder, is there, um, is there a key recommendation that you have for any women who are contemplating um, following your path? Yeah, that's a, that's a good thing to ask. I think there's a few things that I say. One, think about uh, who your community of people is going to be if you pursue this path. You know, do you have immediate family living near you who can help out? If not, do you have a friend, family, or can you form one? Can um, Find other people who are doing this. So there's a Facebook group online, which when I joined it, the Australian, um, what's it called? Australia Solo Mums by Choice Facebook group. When I joined it, it was only like a thousand members in 2018 or something. Now it's like 3,000 plus. So find other women who are doing this. And then also, you know, have support 
things already in place because a fertility journey is like can be really emotionally challenging and also think about your finances how are you going to afford it like unfortunately it is a matter of privilege to be able to do fertility treatment and whilst there are sort of now some free options they're pretty limited so time is sadly <laughs> we can talk about this for so long but I, I just want people to know we're talking to Alexandra Collier uh, she's an author, she's a first time mum, she's a single mum by choice she's written this wonderful book called Inconceivable, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will smile, you will cry, um, <laughs> I found it an incredibly moving book um, and it's not one of those sort of happy ever after kind of stories it's warts and all, it's very real so Alexander, congratulations on writing this book. Uh, it's, you. I think, absolutely wonderful. So thank you for coming in the studio and joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Uh, are we coming to the top of the hour? It's just time to say thank you to our fabulous studio uh, guests. We had Professor Ian Hickey from the Mind and Brain Institute and, of course, Alexandra Collier here in the studio. Um, thanks to the Dr Nick team. We had Prudence Deer, a uh, psychotherapist, uh, doing her fantastic work, and the gorgeous Dr Sonia GP. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.